1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Michael Hathaway about his book titled What a Mushroom Lives For, Matsutake and the Worlds They Make, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. This is a really fascinating book that pushes today's mushroom renaissance, a thing that I guess I had kind of experienced but never really thought about, um, into new directions. And it looks at both kind of the perspective of the mushroom and how we should be thinking about it in a very different way than Western science is perhaps often used to us making assumptions um, and examining how this particular mushroom um, has radically changed all sorts of things in um, two particular places in China, in Yunnan and in Tibet. Um, so this book does a lot of different things, um, and that's one of, the, one of the reasons that it's an incredibly impressive book, as well as being very compelling and interesting. So Michael, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks so much for that introduction. I'm really glad to be starting this conversation with you.
0: Could we, in fact, start that conversation with you introducing yourself and explaining a bit of why you decided to write this book?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, as you said, my name is Michael Hathaway. I'm presently a professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. I'm an anthropologist, but I've had a deep passion for uh, the natural world for a long time. And I've been doing a lot of work on the kind of nexus of nature conservation and questions of indigeneity and indigenous rights, uh, back since the hmm, early 1990s. And then in terms of this book, I had already done some fieldwork on these kind of global environmental politics and how they intersected with indigenous politics in, in Yunnan and already knew a number of interesting uh actors in the area but when i was there i was always living just south of the major places of of the special mushroom the matsutake mushroom and i had a sense of its importance but i didn't really know what an incredible player it was like both socially and economically and then in the early 2000s i got together with uh anna singh who's a professor at uc santa cruz california And she gathered a number of her former students, including myself and a a few uh, close colleagues that were really interested in questions of globalization, um, came often from a bit of a science studies background, feminist analysis uh, perspective, and we all had a meal together. And she proposed that we do a joint project to study the kind of role of this one, Super valuable uh, mushroom, the matsutake. That's based on Japan, but it's now gathered all over the world. And if we could do a, a large scale, long term, collaborative research project where we go to some of the major sites in the world where it's harvested and try to understand how this mushroom may be shaping local uh, social relations and and economies. And I was totally hooked. I was already pretty fascinated by mushrooms, but knew nothing about this particular one and didn't really actually know that much as, as much as I had fascination, but that started, uh, that journey almost, almost 20 years ago.
0: I can see how that would be a very intriguing and sort of compelling idea. Like, Hmm, let's go investigate this very niche thing. That's having a lot of unexpected impacts. Like, are you with me? Hmm. I could see that being, you know, the answer obviously being yes. Yes. (laughs) totally (laughs) (laughs) um so i'd love to kind of follow the trajectory as it were of the book we're obviously unfortunately not going to be able to go into all of the detail that the book does um but i'm hoping we can maybe do like something of a highlights tour i suppose um to cover kind of some of the main stuff um and so then following kind of the order of things in the book itself um you spend the first part of the book talking about uh, mushrooms kind of generally fungi sort of generally um, and how we maybe need to completely rethink how we think about them um, and so you sort of take us through in a lot of ways a new way of thinking sort of that seems like it's sort of developed as your own thinking developed as well um, and so I want to talk about world making which I admit I had never thought about in the context of fungi not once um, so I learned a lot from this and I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about your conception of world making um and the concept that I'm definitely gonna butcher butcher the pronunciation of Umwelt.
1: That's that's pretty good. Yeah.
0: Okay. Can you tell us about this concept and how it influenced your thinking around the world making of fungi?
1: Sure thing. Yeah. So for me, <clears throat> honestly, as an anthropologist, I mostly imagined the book being fully the way it is in the last half, which is a, a bit more of a conventional anthropological account, but you know, with some interesting twists that we'll probably get to later. But with the first half of the book, it was based on a, a really interesting set of questions that emerged through the work where I started to break away from just trying to understand the mushrooms as a, as a mere commodity that is just enabling to human action and started to think more of what does the presence of the of these mushrooms themselves how do they sh- Maybe shape the world around them beyond just their pure utilization by humans and so one time What I was uh, doing fieldwork with? Uh, e uh, pastoralists uh, Who are in this region of? Uh, North uh, Western China, they were talking to me about how when they were hunting the mushrooms, they were also hunting them at the same time as these insects and that how the, the insects were such good hunters. They could detect the mushrooms before they were visible to humans. They could probably smell them underground or some would fly from above and some might, you know, kind of wriggle from below through the ground and uh, and get there. And so, you know, almost every time when they would pick up a one of these Matsutakes, they would already find that one, two, maybe three uh, species of insects were there. And the way that they talked about these insects as kind of like full of cunning and as learning and as observing the world. And then even even in their very short lives, these, these short insect lives, that they may be developing skills or that there would be differences between individual insects and their kind of hunting prowess. And I had never heard anything like this at all. And so after I was um, talking to these uh, mushroom hunters, when I came back to North America, I started to try to dig deep into the scientific literature and think, is there any kind of way of thinking about this uh, that is part of a Western scientific tradition? And then after uh, a bit of a of a journey, I stumbled across some of the writings of, you know, an anthropologist that I had, you know, previously loved, but hadn't really thought about um, in this particular venue. And that was uh, Tim Ingold. His father was actually a mycologist. But one thing that Ingold uh, brings into the anthropological realm is this whole idea uh, that you mentioned called the Umwelt. And this is this uh, concept from Jakob von Uxkol, who's an Estonian uh, scientist at the turn of the century and he had this insight that every species uh, creates its own world through that is limited through its perceptual capacities what what kind of rays of light it's able to see what kind of a an auditory spectrum it's able to hear what its nose or, some kind of equivalent to the nose is able to detect in terms of the, the chemical presence and composition of the air and so forth. And so he started to do research, uh, with a whole number of species, whether it was the jellyfish or different kinds of birds or worms and tried to understand as best he could, what was their, their umwelt? What was their own world? How did they, uh, conjure this world into being through their moment to moment perceptual engagement. And so the kind of classic idea of the umwelt is that each species lives in its own bubble. And so I was really intrigued by using some of these ideas to think of think more deeply about what is the umwelt of these different insects and how you know how might they be able to smell Matsutake from a much further distance than humans ever can, or maybe even dogs can. And the idea that each species may have this really interestingly shaped perceptual capacity that as humans, we are often not as aware of it. Like we make devices that extend our senses, like we make microscopes to be able to see closely or telescopes to be able to see far, or we have different chemical detection devices that, extend our capacity to smell, but um, bringing these things together then helped me to think, ah, does, does the mush- do these different mushrooms have their own umwelt? Do they have any perceptual capacities at all? And I was kind of surprised to learn that they do, but then as I started to learn about these different uh, capacities, it made me think that not only do do these different species of mushrooms, and they could be really distinct, have their own umwelt, but that it's not only the perceptual capacities that engender their action, but that their cumulative actions end up having a a net effect on the world that is palpable and observable and often not necessarily something that humans have uh, tried to pay much attention to, Uh, but that those uh, life-changing world-shaping capacities are there not only in the insect and, you know, obviously in humans, but in fungi themselves. And so I started to kind of push on this idea of world-making, which is a term that some academics often invoke from time to time, but don't really necessarily put together into a as a kind of coherent uh, conceptual level to describe um, the specific capacities uh, of different beings and kind of, especially in anthropology, there's been a move, as you know, like to break out of the deep human centeredness and then to look at other beings. But usually that has only extended to, you know, our close kin, like dogs, for example, or, or other mammals. So I was really interested in kind of trying to think carefully with insects and then out to, um, to fungi themselves to think about how they maybe uh, make, both existing in different worlds, uh, but also making worlds, but also in part through the relationships with other beings such as trees or, or the insects themselves, birds, and you know, perhaps humans, but to break out of that, the human-centered legacy that I think we've inherited so deeply.
0: So tell us you know help us help us break out of that you you've you've explained that we probably need to, and that we've anthropology started to do it in some ways um but can you tell us a bit about how um you've sort of broken away from that a bit or th- started to think about kind of the ways in which mushrooms um do perhaps for example, have more i don't know agency um than we might think?
1: hmm sure. Yeah. Well, it's interesting for me, like you, you mentioned the term agency and with my previous book called environmental winds, I was looking at these different struggles over nature conservation in, especially in Southern Yunnan province, right near the the Mekong river and the border with Vietnam and and Laos. And, and there I was starting to look at non-human agency, but in that case, I was looking at herds of wild elephants. And so it was in this village where the the elephants would come through from time to time. And the effect of elephant agency was just so powerful and strong. You know, they would come in and they may destroy someone's home, especially if they're chasing a dog, they might go up and kind of wipe out a field of wild bananas that people had nurtured or destroy a whole season's worth of grain uh, in, in a single night. And so, And that way I could, it was so easy to see agency as we usually understand it, which is a more like human centered, uh, uh, framework. So when I started to dig into agency, to try to open it up to get out of either a human based agency, which often has a certain Judeo Christian legacy of intentionality and will, or then to think about it in terms of other, uh, Animals that are big like us, like elephants, where we can say, uh, we don't know necessarily about the elephant's pure intentionality, but at least we can see what it does. And it's a very palpable thing. And we can um, see one elephant doing this. But then, you know, in terms of asking this question of what does a mushroom do? What kind of agency does a mushroom have? It, it became so much harder. And so you couldn't see how it, you know, a single mushroom could have such a, a big effect on the world. So part of what I tried to do is to break out of a kind of individualist model of like the individual mushroom. And in part, I was realizing too, that the mushrooms are just these fruiting bodies that are coming from these uh, mycelium underground that look like roots, but it's more like the, the everyday body of of the fungi and they are uh, constantly spreading and that they are doing all of this work all of these forms of living even while we don't see the fruiting body the mushroom itself and so just to think about these forms of kind of cumulative agency that it's not these individual mushrooms that exist in and of themselves but they are part of this large underground body that can be hundreds of hectares in size, potentially that can be thousands of years older that they are down there. Um, in their life, they are searching for water. They are mining and drilling into, into certain minerals that they can somehow detect. And, you know, they're going for like a high mineral diet of particular kinds of things that they are searching out for. Some of them mycelium of other species are able to, Detect nematodes; these microscopic worms that live under the soil and then are just totally everywhere. And they're able to lasso them and to kill them and to basically, you know, suck the nutritional juices out of these nematodes. And they're also often making connections with so many kinds of plants. Almost all the plants that we see in the world have uh, are part of underground networks with mycelium. So just that. Through these active forms of life, that all of these uh, fungal species are doing, that they are constantly performing. They are constantly acting. They are making decisions about growth. They are imbibing water, and you know potentially, for example, lowering water tables. They are infiltrating into logs and turning them from, you know, hardwood into soft, crumbly duff that becomes part of the soil. They are enabling the, the trees that they form relationships to above. But one thing that was really interesting is that a lot of the reading that I was doing was, even if it was talking about fungi and their actions, it was rendering them as passive. So it was just saying that uh, in almost all the textbooks that fungi absorb their food. And so I became suspicious of this kind of narrative of passivity, or it just seemed that uh when a mycelium is just beginning when it's just a uh kind of like a newborn when it's it's germinated from a spore it just seems to make relations with plants uh automatically but then as i started to mm-hmm. dig deeper there is actually forms of chemical exchange uh forms of communication going on between the mushroom and the plants and so that those forms of fusion um were not necessarily automatic, but were uh, not always predictable, but emerged in relationship to uh, decisions that were going on as an actively sensing being. So it was really interesting to be, you know, being an anthropologist, reading this very uh, scientifically specific and uh, set of articles with highly developed vocabulary to describe it but one thing i was really noticing was this deep tendency to render these really interesting uh different uh forms of life in in passive ways and so that was something that i was really curious about exploring as an anthropologist to try to think what are the kind of hidden uh ideologies that then shape the representations of these forms of life in the biological literature and, you know, it's inspired by anthropologists like Emily Martin, who wrote, you know, the woman in the body in part where she is looking at medical textbooks to think about how do they represent the differences between male reproduction and female reproduction and often rendering female reproduction very passive ways. And so, you know, reading that, those texts like that um, from a long time ago helped me to read the... The mycological literature, the literature on scientific literature on mushrooms, in a bit of a, of a kind of, against the grain way to try to figure out are there, larger, sets of presuppositions that shape, the representation of the scientific facts and that may even then, uh, shape the kinds of experiments that are carried out on the mushrooms. So that was something that became increasingly interesting to me.
0: Well, so I actually found that fascinating in the book because one of the things you talk about as being one of these assumptions or presuppositions that you sort of discover in reading this literature in I think it's fair to say probably an unusual or unorthodox way um, is how influential English um, and not just English the language but English as coming from England as well um, influence the knowledge of fungi and, and of course we know okay, majority of sort of academic published articles, English is hugely dominant in that field. Um, So when you kind of first mentioned it in the book, I was like, okay, I know where this is going. Um, I did not know where it was going. That is not what I was expecting to come next. Um, So can you please tell us how has England and English influenced knowledge of fungi?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting to me as well. Like I had Because I was in some of these, uh, you know, mycological societies, I knew about some of these uh, stories, actually, which may be then different than what you expected, uh, about uh, England, which is, you know, kind of world famous among the mushroom lovers of the world as being one of the most, we call it fungophobic or, you know, fungi fearing or even loathing Uh, cultures that's been documented. There are a few other groups, maybe the Inuit up, you know, in the polar North are also kind of quite skeptical about them and quite leery of them in terms of, of, of poison. And I I knew that in England, historically, there was not nearly that kind of deep tradition of loving to hunt mushrooms in the way that so many of the neighbors, you know, obviously like in, in Italy and Spain and France and Russia, I mean, Russia that has whole uh, train rides that go out just specifically during mushroom hunting season so everyone can leave Moscow and, and go out and, and collect a basket full of mushrooms that I knew that England didn't really have much of a, a rich mushroom eating culture and I, I have a great textbook that um, or a, not a, that was published right around World War II when you know food supplies were dire in the UK and they were trying to entice, uh people to go out and try different mushrooms and and warning them that you know or trying to encourage them that not all mushrooms are toadstools so i knew that there was some some of this but the depth of the kind of fear and loathing that i got to learn about in reading into the you know the mid 1800s a lot of these studies that that emerged out of England were talking about this kind of, they call them vegetable vermin. And there's a sense that they create forms of death. That they were part of putrescence that they were really associated with disease. So it was, it was something that was often seen in England uh, as like a kind of almost like a force of evil that, uh, that has all of these negative uh, ramifications in their life. So it wasn't just a, a mere threat of, you know, eating the accidental poisonous mushroom in terms of an individual, but it was a kind of force in the world, a, a kind of whole, a whole set of beings that that were malevolent. And one of the the stories that I tell in the book is how, you know, you already had this deep suspicion uh, of of these mushrooms, and then later when the potato famine happened that was something that at that time they classified these as fungi. Now we don't, but that kind of started then this, the sense of, Oh, these invisible, uh, beings. And they were often seen as, you know, part of the plant kingdom and actually part of the plant kingdom until 1969, which really kind of surprises me that they were kind of emerged in that many people still think of them as plants, but that this, this form of life that's often invisible that is very threatening to human health that can wipe out all the potatoes that can wipe out all of these other food crops that uh, in, infests and infects grain and so it that deep uh, British legacy of of fearing mushrooms of the rise of um, a lot of the first serious studies of mushrooms comes out of a plant pathology background and what i then realized is that oh there are so many other ways to understand the roles of fungi and uh that actually their role as these i mentioned earlier they're called mycorrhizal organisms that actually help plants flourish underground that are so essential to to many plants to really thrive that was really relatively ignored and even when uh, early scientists started to make these kind of claims that these these underground networks may be helping plants they were first totally scorned and, and ridiculed as you know there's there's no way these kind of mushroom-like things underground uh, could possibly helping plants they must must be pathogenic so there's this deep kind of pathogenic bias that emerges that really shapes a lot of Fungal studies, so that even to this day, the you know the vast majority of academic mycologists have been within botany departments, have been within uh, plant pathology, so dealing with disease, and so we just have are only really uh, in the last few decades starting to really flourish uh, in terms of our understandings of the incredible importance of these underground mycorrhizal networks. So that's one element. The other element. Uh, just in terms of English as uh, embedding a specific kind of ideology I, I was more and more intrigued with. And it was um, the Potawatomi scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote a, an amazing book that's been a bestseller now for years called Braiding Sweetgrass. And uh, a friend alerted me to this passage where she describes the the kind of, incredible powers and bursting forth of a mushroom that just kind of seems to pop up overnight and, and describes the, the Potawatomi terms for that, that kind of explosion of life when it, when it comes, it can even, you know, break through, uh, asphalt in some places and how that that's a really different way of rendering of the activity and life force of mushrooms than English. And she starts to analyze, uh, English as, uh, a specific language that uh, is very, as, as you know, a number of languages are, granted this is not English specific, but it's very human exceptionalist. So that was one thing I tried to even start to play with in the book. And I think actually I was not 100% ex- successful uh, in doing this. It'd be interesting to go back and see where I wasn't. But I tried to uh, describe the mushrooms uh, in terms of using pronouns that were associated with personhood. So I would, you know, instead of referring to them as it, I would refer to them as who or they. Um, and that was, you know, in part inspired by Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, notation that in English there was this deep divide between writing uh, that only humans uh were kind of endowed with elements of personhood or even had a gender. And so I was inspired by her and also inspired by, um, you know, some of the early studies by Jane Goodall, where she was a, one of the, the first scientists to actually use gender-specific terms to describe the chimpanzees and then how her paper was rejected. And the, the editor said, well, you know, we must be, scientific and detached and we can't be anthropomorphizing Uh, we need to use the term it because you can't say he or she except for humans and jane goodall uh pushed back and she was finally able to get her her work published and she was telling them like hey in this case i am following family lineages and it's really critical in this situation that i am referring to you know, a specific social relationship, an aunt or a mother or a daughter of one chimpanzee over another. And so I think, too, that this was also something that uh, Jane Goodall's work, and I later, she came to my university and I got to host her for a day and she got to tell me this the story. And it was such a, a thrill to hear how this happened and that that, that was a big, a, a transformative moment in kind of uh, pushing science beyond its uh, fear of anthropomorphism that actually when you look at it another way is part of a kind of surprising hidden commitment to human exceptionalism so that you know to only use gendered pronouns for humans um, and then to kind of deliberately erase that for all other beings is something that that does that when it comes to to mushrooms of course because you've read the book you realize that there are incredible number of Gendered possibilities that are often called sex types, but um, so I couldn't easily, you know, call a call a mushroom a he or or she. They were almost all theys, uh, kind of plurality. But that was one of the um, examples of how English, as a specific language, uh, carries with it a whole set of of hidden frameworks that are rarely um, discussed. So that was, uh, English specific. And then there are also, of course, scientific, uh, specific, uh, ways that that English has played some role in it, but doesn't shape. And, and as you said, yeah, so many of the academic papers are in English, but especially in the natural sciences, it's something like 80 to 90% of all the, of all the materials. So that made me start to think of how has English perhaps shaped larger ways of understanding mushrooms, of representing them, how has that maybe guided research projects and experiments and funding priorities and how has that shaped the world as we know it today, the construction of authoritative knowledge. I mean, not only about mushrooms, but about many other species. And so that's, I I think, part of of what you're talking about in terms Mm -hmm. of the surprising role of English.
0: Yeah. I I definitely um thank you for explaining that um I think it really adds complexity in a lot of useful ways um in addition to just being really interesting and something that I think probably not a lot of people um have thought about or maybe I'm just underestimating it it's really just me who knows um we will find out I'm sure um so I'd love to kind of as we've done a little bit obviously not lots of detail, but some coverage of sort of the first half of the book, I'd love to sort of move to the second half that you described earlier as being kind of the more classically anthropological part, I suppose. Um, But nevertheless, very much informed by these kinds of thoughts and discussions around kind of what is a mushroom in a way? How does it influence things around it and itself? Um, So I kind of, the, the, the question I suppose that most came to mind to kind of bridge these two halves of the book is. Can you tell us about the Matsutake mushroom and how it spreads, how they establish themselves in new places? Um, kind of, h- How does a Matsutake mushroom come to be in a particular place?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, love to. Uh, so the, mush, the Matsutake, for those people that don't know it, and it is sold um, sometimes in the fall, around October, in some fancy London restaurants. So if you're, if you're there, you can definitely try it sometime if you haven't already, it's, it, it appears, uh, quite prolifically in British Columbia where I am and just a handful of places around the world. And it's this lovely, strong, white, fleshy mushroom that has certain, uh, these mycorrhizal relationships, either with forms of Oak or with pine trees. And it, the moat it has this very, very special smell about it. And it has a an oil in it that scientists have only ever detected in this one species. Um, and it's called even like Matsutake Sol. And it is very spicy and cinnamon and just so distinctive. There are a number of mushrooms that actually grow near it that look almost identical, but none of them have this smell. And it is something then that different insects or you know, slugs have also kind of honed in on, um, so that is part of the the multi species uh, competitive hunting uh, that goes on. And it's some, it's a a mushroom that doesn't really like the tropics. It can't. It likes more of a temperate climate. But one, so one of the interesting stories in Yunnan Province where I saw it is that I kind of realized in. In trying to like in the first half of the book to think in terms of deep time to think in terms of tens or hundreds of millions of years it helped me to realize that you know matsutake could not have been growing there forever that matsutake is on the move and it also helped me to then rethink the biological you know habitat maps that you see of species and they're almost always presented as statically as you know, this species lives here, this species lives here. And almost never, I realized on the maps, do they show a timeline? Do they show or any kind of movement of how these species moved? And so kind of thinking of this place that used to be uh, quite tropical, and, you know, very close to, you know, if you think of where, where Vietnam and, and Laos, that was the kind of basic condition. But then reading how What we now know as India today was a separate island, and it, through tectonic plate movements, it moved quite rapidly and with quite a lot of force up north, and it smashed into this low-lying tropical area. But the collision of that smash over many millions of years has created the Himalayan mountains. And the Himalayan mountains then created the... Uh, what some people call the third pole, these, you know, obviously we know huge areas of glaciers and cold, and there was then a certain ring on that mountain that uh, that pine trees and oak trees that could be the host for Matsutake found conducive to living, and somehow they got there. And then somehow uh, the Matsutake also uh, got there. So this is a a place that historically... Would have been totally inhospitable to matsutake, but the crash of India and the creation of the Himalayas uh, allowed the potentiality for matsutake. And it's an interesting kind of chicken and egg question, always That's that's not fully solvable, but um, it, you know, kind of do the trees that are often called the hosts come first, or does the matsutake or other forms of mycorrhizal uh, fungi that really enable these trees to thrive come first, or these kind of interesting puzzles, because they also seem in many ways deeply uh, symbiotic so that they kind of need each other. But the pines and oaks can make relationship with many, many different kinds of mushrooms. So it doesn't need the matsutake, whereas the matsutake pretty much when they the spores land, they, they fairly quickly need to find uh, these relationships with uh, compatible species of trees that they fuse to. And the whole question of how they got there is really intriguing. I, I drew from some you know speculative uh, you know as most of this kind of older evolutionary work is on the distribution of mushrooms and that it used DNA patterns uh, to look at, to find clusters and then to make... Uh, speculations around movement and so one of the ideas is that you know the spores that you know kind of rain out of mushrooms and by the way right they are literally shot out of uh, of the mushrooms with incredible force uh, compared to the usual depiction of them just kind of gently falling that they can sometimes I realized even though most of them will land quite close sometimes they will actually generate their own wind patterns to get up outside of the cap And through passing winds, they can sometimes go up high into atmospheric currents. So they have the capacity to jump continents. And we do know that this um, happens. And so it's incredibly rare that, you know, they can survive these transcontinental journeys. There's a a lot of desiccation possibility. There's a lot of intense UV light that can be damaging to certain spores, but somehow in some way, those spores are able to find new habitats. So if you look on a map, you can see that Matsutake are not contiguous in any area. So this is a kind of island. And so somehow they arrive, but then once they arrive, they form these underground networks and they also then spread through the underground. And one of the interesting things I found about it is that they can then spread on the underground by enabling and fostering the spread of forest. they the... They can help uh, the tree's health. They can you know, provide all this uh, important water. And the, the fungi, the mycelium, have these incredibly fine little uh, threads that are so much finer than uh, even the thinnest plant roots. And so they are able to extract water uh, that for a tree would be utterly unextractable, would be so bound up in the clays. And so they, especially during the drought, the, the underground mycelia are able to, you know, find this critical water. They are able to literally drill holes through grains of phosphorus bearing sand, and then to use these uh, digestive juices to extrude them and then to actively uh, pull in these nutrients so that they're helping these trees grow so that it's not just a, um, a static form. And one of the other interesting things in terms of how do they kind of come into this being, I was realizing that sometimes there are these new species of trees that evolve there and Matsutake will move from one place to another place and they will literally have to search out and make new partners Uh, with other species. And that was another thing that I found uh, really kind of lacking in most of the biological literature that, again, would not only take the habitats as relatively static, but would say, you know, Matsutake form relationships, say, with these 10 kinds of trees. But then to be realizing that Matsutake are all over the world and um, they are actually uh, creating new relationships with new species of trees so that this is a kind of ongoing uh dynamic set of relationships and so there became these very uh prolific bands of of matsutake around the himalayas and what used to be a long time ago uh, a tropical place in which matsutake totally couldn't um, have been so that was Uh, really interesting to me to think about how they got there, how they start to move, both above ground and underground. Um, That was a very different way of understanding history compared to my earlier work there where I was thinking more in terms of a century or two.
0: Fascinating. So many different variables and so much in a lot of ways that we still don't know, um, but really quite interesting. So thank you for explaining that. I'd love to kind of think about then the places where obviously the Matsutake are. Um, and one of them, you, one kind of community you focus on that you've mentioned already is the Yi community in Yunnan in Southern China. Um, so can you tell us about how the Matsutake trade has impacted uh, these groups in Yunnan?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the Yi are, were a group that I had not worked with uh, historically. My, um, supervisor back in graduate school at Michigan, Eric Mugler had done a lot of work with, uh, E and Chuxiang, uh, County in this region. And so I had some kind of background familiarity, but, um, going to these places, it was really interesting to see that, you know, people were just so thrilled that they had locked out that the, that the areas that they lived in were some of the the best Monsutake habitat in all of China. And that the mushrooms were there, but I also realized, uh, for the mushrooms to be part of the you know the best matsutake habitat, for us to know this, it requires people to pick them, and people have to get up early in the morning and and go out and and find them and basically rush them to market, and sometimes up to eight or nine or ten steps all the way down, finally to from one person to the next to get them to the airport to ship them off to. To Japan because the mushrooms can never be frozen. And so they're constantly, you know, constantly starting to decay. And so it's this incredible, um, incredible speed uh, of movement of Matsutake from these high Himalayan mountains down to uh, the major airport of Kunming and then flown off to Tokyo or Kyoto. Uh, So for the Yi people, they're uh, relatively, you know, uh in the middle range, altitudinal and the Tibetans are often up higher their Tibetans are our neighbors just a, a bit away. but they've been in this area for a long long time and they've figured out ways to negotiate their lives with the Han Chinese majority. And so in a lot of the histories the, the E kind of had to abandon some of their lower uh, terrace areas, the place that were the best for irrigated agriculture as the Han military or other uh, merchants moved in as part of the governmental apparatus uh, connected in some ways. And so the, the E have often been, been seen as kind of impoverished uh, mountain dwellers who herd yaks and kind of live at the edge of Uh, the kind of bustling uh, Han economy. And so one thing that I found really interesting is that these, these E Matsutake dealers were telling me that, oh yeah, this represents a whole new thing for us. They said before, if you wanted to get a good job, you had to really switch from speaking E to switch to speaking Mandarin. And so, you know, our kids are able to go to schools. The schools here are not so great, but, and there's a kind of bias and, um, Against them, uh, in the the realm of professional activity, and uh, so it's difficult in schools. It's difficult to to get a good job. There's a kind of stigma against E, um, and you can really only, you know, make a decent life if you are are speaking Mandarin and are engaged in this way. But it's still hard, and so some of them said that. What Matsutake did is that starting in the eighties, it became incredibly lucrative and became a way that uh, they could create an e-linguistic kind of bubble where the, the dealers would be situated in these towns and then they would send their, uh, their agents, could drive up far into the mountain and then they'd have higher agents above, higher in the mountain and everything could be done Uh, in the E language and one could stay at home and be supported by one's community and not face any of the kind of discrimination or stigma that would sometimes happen if they're going into the bigger towns um, when they're mostly kind of working for Han bosses. And that people started to also to expect the bosses to spend their money locally. And so some of the bosses were making uh, their own tourist sites that would be you know, give them a a different kind of autonomy so that, again, like a kind of E-controlled tourism company with E-foods and E-cultural activities like singing and dancing. And so that uh, it created this sense of a reinvestment of the money in the economy and this possibility of really one of the first that happened for a long time of creating vibrant forms of community support and a kind of e-revitalization. Uh, and so some people were saying that like the demand for uh, music and so uh, really expanded and, and and dances and other kinds of festivals and that it used to be something that would fully be organized in a very official way by, by Han Cadres, uh, government officials, but that it increasingly became more and more something that was done locally and almost all of the managers of these were the same uh, people that were in charge of the Matsutake economy so that it became thousands and thousands of people in these E areas who could all make some kind of a, of a living during the fall Matsutake season. And they also then too started to branch into, into other mushrooms. It became this kind of like kingdom of mushrooms um, as they were also, uh, picking lots and lots of other mushrooms during other times of year, starting to get into the truffle market or creating uh, uh, this powder that they would ship to Italy and that would become later resold as Italian mushroom powder, um, that it became part of a a thriving uh, e, e-linguistic community where um, those kind of values and those kinds of of, of relationships and a base level of, of newly found wealth were possible in part by Matsutake, but also um, other mushrooms. And so this is kind of a whole hidden world that I saw emerging that you know could easily uh, not be noticed um, that one could pass that by, but that's part of the, the story of the e and the Matsutake.
0: And having clearly quite a huge impact, even if you could pass it by and not notice, clearly within the community, There's a lot going on um, by virtue of being so involved um, in trading, hunting down the Matsutake. Um, So I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a bit about uh, the Tibetan experience. In what ways might it be similar as the Yi and what kind of, what are some of the dynamics that are perhaps more unique to the Tibetan um, involvement in the Matsutake um, economy?
1: Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah, well, it's interesting with the Tibetan economy Um, it was, they were also, uh, in, as you know, you know, kind of relatively lower, uh, social status position vis-a-vis, uh, the, the Han living in town. So both kind of in terms of forms of discrimination for work or in terms of lower access to capital or, uh, you know, well-paying jobs and, you know, part of a, of a longer term dynamic. And, you know, a lot of the Tibetans also were really interested in their own forms of autonomy. And so in this place, you know, yak herding was still a critical aspect of their lives uh, that was going on. But for Tibetans... One of the interesting things that something that one of my, um, colleagues, David Aurora, who is an incredible, um, uh, self-taught, uh, scholar of mushrooms that I knew from, from California that he had, that he had noted was uh, when the Tibetans started getting into Matsutake, they often, uh, were investing these incredible sums of money in these giant homes. And so these homes that were called Matsutake mansions were just kind of going up one after the other, um, in these areas. And part of it, what I learned later was that, you know, some of the, the, the matriarchs of the family, the mothers and the grandmothers were saying, well, you know, we have all of this wealth coming in. How do we make sure it's not just frittered away? It's not just gambled away or, or just kind of quickly comes and quickly goes. And, you know, this is a part of the world too, right? Where there are, a number of boom bust um, economies. There's a kind of legacy of that. So there was a sense of this could be a boom, but this may also go away quickly. But so one of the things that I saw with Tibetans is that they would yeah you know, these build these incredible homes, and so there was a great kind of pride in that. This resurgence of of architecture, and then one of the surprising elements of this was that in some of the towns I was in, then they were hiring, uh, craftspeople to do these beautiful, you know, Buddhist paintings inside to carve these elaborate windows all over. And they were hiring a lot of, of Han people from Sichuan, uh, to do this. And there was a, then an, then even kind of certain kind of pleasure for these, uh, Tibetans in these rural areas to be hiring Han to carve in their way, to paint in their way, uh, to learn, their their styles and so there's a kind of interesting uh dynamic a kind of reversal of you know long expected sediment uh sedimented hierarchies of, of social relations that was really kind of uh satisfying and another thing that people did with this money was to invest in their children for religious training so it started to connect this tibetan region which is you know in Yunnan proper, and to foster their uh children to go to do monastery training in uh, tibetan autonomous region in Qinghai and all these places throughout the broader uh tibetan diaspora and so they were saying that they had often felt relatively isolated from this larger diaspora where they used to be much more connected and matsutake money was a key way in which they were kind of investing in their children and kind of reestablishing themselves as part of this this uh, rich, uh, diverse uh, Tibetan um, social world. And then another thing that they would do sometimes is invest the money into trucks. And so this is often a very kind of um, incredibly dangerous thing because you're driving on these, you know, very steep. Uh, Roads along the edge of the Himalayas, uh, especially if you're driving during the monsoon season, there are lots of mudslides. There are no guardrails. Uh, it's very precipitous. There are a lot of places where the road isn't exactly two trucks wide, so you have to be watching. But um, a lot of them were saying that being able to invest in the in the trucks was a kind of resuscitation of their ancient trading networks, and they were saying that you know this is something that they had done historically. They were transnational traders and they were often moving you know valuable goods such as tea and um, hammered copper and other kinds of precious goods up over these incredibly high elevation mountain pathways sometimes coming from southeast asia up all the way into tibet proper and then down into india and so for for some of them being able to buy these trucks that otherwise you know no. It was incredibly hard to come up with this kind of money, and, and Matsutake was the only way possible. That there was a certain kind of pride and kind of re-inhabiting their territory as these um, the kind of like the king of the road and people that were t- like transporting goods in in these trucks that reminded them of their of a proud legacy of of moving valuable goods across. Uh, you know, imperial lines or national lines, and so yeah, the there were, it definitely led to something of of a kind of uh, of a Tibetan revival in the places where the Matsutake was really prolific. And uh, but on the other hand, one of the interesting things too about Matsutake is it's very specific needs that are beyond human uh, possibilities of control or management. So you'd have. You know, one Tibetan village that would become quite wealthy through the matsutake wealth, and just you know, maybe ten or twenty kilometers away, you have another one of the about the same size, and the forest looks about the same. But for one reason or another, the matsutake would never really fruit prolifically there, and that village would kind of remain economically poor. And so, it also sometimes created different uh, tensions uh, between villages. But but it, the effect was just. Um, totally dramatic. And it still kind of goes on today, although everybody still realizes that their fortunes have become hitched to the kind of Japanese economy. And they've watched the prices go up and down. And they're trying to figure out family by family, whether or not they get rid of their herds of yaks and really devote themselves to the Matsutake harvest in the fall, or how do they try to figure out what the future may bring both you know, ecologically and um, also economically.
0: Thank you for explaining that to us. Um, There are so many different aspects of how clearly there are economic aspects, social, cultural, um, political, you know, all sorts of different ways that this thing that seems very small, oh, it's a particular mushroom that people in Japan like, actually has all of the, you know, there's a lot more going on than that. Um, And so kind of as uh, we sort of finish up the interview, obviously, um, I think something that... This, this encapsulates it in a lot of ways that you know what a mushroom lives for you might look at that title and go okay i have no idea what does a mushroom live for huh never really thought about that and the book as we've done in this interview sort of starts from a sort of known quantity of like mushrooms cool that's a thing some people really like to eat them okay and then expands out into sort of philosophical questions of what is an animal um you know scientific questions actually turns out there's this whole thing under the ground that we didn't know about until relatively recently and still have a lot to uncover um to something that has huge impacts on humans both like literally in terms of oh look you get money from this but also in terms of revitalizing um marginalized cultures and languages um, and all sorts of things and so I think it's absolutely fascinating that kind of from this one seemingly small starting point, um, we've spread out into all these things, which also could be um a metaphor of what a mushroom looks like as well, and um, the visible expression of a massive network. Um so what after to so to stop me from rambling on further, um, I'd love to ask you about now that this book is out, what are you working on now or next?
1: Mm. Well, I've got Two, two main projects, one related to this and one um, pretty different, but it may have a few overlaps. So the one that's more related to this project is um, the idea for a a follow-up book where I'm trying to to build these alliances uh, between different scientists who are working in a much more lively um from a much more lively paradigm of, of how they interact with this with their different species. So in the book, I talk a, a lot about how there's this kind of deep uh, rendering of different plants and fungi in a much more passive mode. And I've, I've mentioned a few elements of that in the interview today. But I've been finding you know, a handful of scholars who are using what's called an active ni- niche hypothesis that shows how... Uh, you know, different organisms are reshaping their environment. They're not just, uh, organisms do not just get shaped by the environment. So there's some kind of interesting reciprocity. So trying to foster connections between scientists who may not even really know of each other or think of themselves in this camp. And so that's something I've started to make some of these connections, especially with mycologists and botanists. And so I'd love to create a kind of forum that helps us in a broader way to both think critically about the existing uh, frameworks that are hidden within mainstream biology and to help to proliferate uh, another way of understanding the natural world that is both you know, part of peer reviewed science and helps motivate peer reviewed science. So it's not just purely in the kind of woo-woo category, (laughs) but is uh, trying to ask different sets of questions and try to figure out how to explore that and to recognize the world-making capacities of all beings. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about. And then another uh, project that I just got uh, support this a few months ago from the Guggenheim Foundation that I'm really excited about is to look at uh, the ways that China is an incredibly important global player, but in ways that we often have no idea about. So I've been building relationships with different indigenous communities in Canada and then also in Japan. And so a lot of people don't know that in all of the world, uh, in the 1970s especially, and sometimes into the 80s, China was probably the most active supporter of different indigenous movements. And so, China, Chinese authorities invited all all indigenous delegations from Canada, from Japan, from New Zealand, from Australia, and probably others, uh, to go and to see what kinds of, you know, incredible things that they had done in terms of supporting what they were calling ethnic minority rights. How they had created this incredible university that had professors and students. That were reading and writing and all of these different, what they were calling ethnic minority languages. Um, that China was kind of trying to present itself as a, both a kind of leader of the third world and the kind of revolutionary uh, kind of uh, model of what could be possible under under communism, as well as as a kind of early days. Uh, example of multiculturalism that was supposedly, you know, respecting and nurturing the great uh, ethnic diversity at the time that, you know, in Canada and Japan, uh, Australia and New Zealand, there was very, very little of that. And so that these were really inspiring um, places to go. And I've been starting to interview some of these different Indigenous leaders from Canada and Japan to try to understand then how it reshaped their vision of what was possible in their own place and how it began part of like the slow uh, work of through many grassroots actions of kind of nurturing the um, the possibilities of understanding oneself as part of the fourth world, as part of the indigenous world, and how that's then uh, tried to explore how that has shaped the Political and social conditions of being both in Japan and Canada, as well as, as more broadly. So I guess it, in some ways, it relates back to this idea of or this fascination I have with, uh, with China as playing these kind of, uh, surprising roles at, at, in. What are kind of planetary uh, shaping uh, dynamics? So, but it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a pivot for sure.
0: <laughs> well, they both sound <laughs> very interesting. So, best of luck with that. Um, but while you are off researching those two projects, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled "What a Mushroom Lives For: Matsutake and the Worlds They Make" from Princeton University Press in 2022. Dr. Michael Hathaway, thank you so much for being with the podcast.
1: Oh. Thanks so much for the invitation and the amazing conversation. I so enjoyed it. Thanks a lot.